Filmmaker Mark Jenkin is best known for the film Bait from 2019. However, as you will hear in this episode of Into the Mothlight podcast, the journey that led him to creating this outstanding film is a long and interesting one. We look at this journey from his early days making a Derek Jarman-inspired music video to his time in the production houses of Soho in London, to his return to his native Cornwall and his debut feature Golden Burn, which won the Frank Copplestone First Time Directors Award at the Celtic Film and Television Awards in 2002. In the week that Mark should have been wrapping up his latest feature film, Ennismen, a folk horror-inspired tale set in a fictional island off the coast of Cornwall, we met online and talked about shooting on and hand-processing analogue film, his filmmaking manifesto, his experimentation within the form in cinema, and his work as associate lecturer in film and moving image at Falmouth University. But we start, as mentioned, at the beginning of this journey, and his first experiences with a Super 8 camera. Into the Mothlight. I think it probably was the first time that I shot a roll of Super 8, which was when when I yeah when I went to London and um, had this high concept movie idea, which was to to shoot a film called London in London, backed by the Smiths London track, and um, and he, I mean that that originally the inspiration for doing that was um, having seen The Garden, Derek Jarman's The Garden, which I saw just by accident I think I'm, I'm probably 17 I think and I'd been out in town I grew up in North Cornwall and I came back home and put Channel 4 on and they were just trailing the, the garden it was going to be on after the adverts and the way I remember it is that there was um, when they trailed stuff in the background while the continuity announcer was talking about it there'd be the channel 4 logo and then in the background of that would be some clips from the thing that they were going to show after the adverts and it just grabbed me this um what I then found out was super 8 footage so something that was impressionistic and and not the shiny norm that um that that was on the tv which obviously now would look like really fuzzy analog video but back then to my eyes, everything was very bright and sharp, and suddenly there was this something that I wouldn't have been able to articulate at the time, but grainy, um, stuttering movement, and it just really captured captured my attention. So not only did I watch the film, but I thought I would video it as well. So I had this video of the garden that I used to watch all the time, and I just I think from then I found out what Super 8 was as a format. I was I was studying photography at St Austell College and I I was making these photo stories with stills trying to trying to communicate a narrative via these stills and um John Smith my tutor 
at the college said to me, you know, you're reinventing film. Why don't you just shoot film? And I said, well, you know, how do I do that? And he said, get hold of a Super 8 camera. And he said, it's just something that shoots 24 frames a second. And and that's that's how you create a moving image. And so I, I got a... Uh, I got hold of a Super 8 camera. I think it was in the it was in the days of the old yellow the 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 free ads paper, the yellow free ads paper. And I remember my mum drove me to Exmouth, which was a fair old journey, um, to go and buy second Super Super 8 camera, which I think came with a projector as well and a splicer, and it was like 15 quid or something. And we drove like two hours there and two hours back to get this crappy little plastic um super 8 camera and that's the one that i took to london and and shot this roll of film i i wrote out the lyrics of london by the smiths and um decided what shots i was going to shoot so i had a piece of paper with you know i I would hold the shutter down for five seconds in trafalgar square and then i would go somewhere else and shoot another seven seconds and all this kind of stuff and then sent the came back to cornwall sent the film off to the lab in germany because it was kodachrome and then it came back two to four weeks later you know one one day i came home and there was this small yellow package there and put it on the projector and i think from that moment i was just hooked by it and it was it was strange because not only was it inspired by Derek Jarman's The Garden but then I was obviously a Smiths obsessive at the same time and I didn't know the link between Derek Jarman and the Smiths at that point and then went on to discover that he'd done all those great films you know and especially the, the film The Queen Is Dead that he did for them which is just still such a major influence I'm constantly having to check myself that I'm not ripping that off with almost every bit of experimental work that I do so yeah, that was about as broad as it went, you know, Derek Jarman and the and the Smiths at that point. Obviously, I was interested in content. I had something that I wanted to say or something that I wanted to see reflected back at me from the screen. But but the form was incredibly important to me, and it and it and it's remained incredibly important. Tell me a little bit about um, your career. So you you were seventeen and making these films, but I know that you went to work in um, in promo production and and Soho so what what was that kind of the, the journey into that as a career with them um, the the other film work going on in the background I went and studied in Bournemouth did a production degree and learned learned a huge amount there in terms of shooting and and editing and and realized that for me filmmaking was editing effectively that was that was the key thing that was missing from my work because I used to shoot Super 8 I was editing everything in camera so the the idea of post-production was sort of alien post-production for me was was threading the film onto the projector and and making a very basic soundtrack on cassette and pressing play on the cassette player at the same time as switching the projector on so what doing a doing a production degree taught me was the importance of post-production and I didn't, and I was in Bournemouth, which coming from where I came from in Norfolk, Cornwall, going to Bournemouth was like moving to Manhattan. So that was about as far as up the line as I wanted to go at that point. And I I just worked on um, building sites in Bournemouth once I, well, while I was doing the degree, but also when I graduated. But then eventually I did, everybody who I'd been at, college with university with it it ended up going up to the big city to work in the industry and I think I got I had a bit of a feeling that I was missing out on something so eventually I did move to London 
and I did the I, I did the literal knocking on doors I walked down Dean Street was the first street I walked down and I knocked on knocked on all the doors like I was told to do um, I was quite naive I was wearing a suit and um, which made me look quite out of place in Soho really and and one of the first doors I knocked on was um, uh, an editing company Sam Sneed Editing and they were their their runner was off sick and so the receptionist just sort of said yeah come up we've got a couple of days work for you and the first thing I did was I was sent off to to go and buy a, a bacon roll from um, Bruno's on Wardour Street and bring it back for the director who was in with the editor and uh, so I so I went and I went and did that and I came back and um, the receptionist go, go into the edit suite and give the director the bacon roll and uh, I went in and gave him the bacon roll and then I just pulled up a chair and sat down at the at the editing desk with the editor and, and the director and then suddenly the receptionist appeared at the door and sort of told me to leave the room to come back out because that's not what you you were meant to do I kind of thought by the end of the day I'd probably be helping with the edit um, but all they wanted to, me to do was make cups of tea and but that, I found out I soon found out that was um, the director was Jonathan Glazer and the um, they were cutting the commercial the Guinness surfer commercial which you know, went on to become probably the most famous advert of all time but that was my that was my introduction to to Soho and from there I ended up going and working at Framestore CFC just as a runner in the animation department while they were making Walking with Dinosaurs and all I really had to do was order stationery for the department every sort of every fortnight and then and let two producers from the BBC in sort of every couple of days and the rest of the time I was just sat in this little in the stationery cupboard basically but the IT department was on the same floor and um one day the guy from IT came over and said did I want a computer and uh, I said yeah and so he put a computer in this little room and I had the photocopier in there and the printer and I ended up sitting in there writing a screenplay by this time I was quite homesick for Cornwall so I wrote a feature length screenplay um, about my experience growing up with my mates in in Cornwall and then took two weeks holiday in the summer of 1999 just after the eclipse had happened so everybody in the world seemed to have traveled to to Cornwall just a couple of weeks after that I arrived back home in Cornwall and made this film uh, which, and I went back to London and by then I I got made redundant from that job and got given a bit of a payoff a bit of money with and with that I bought myself a computer with a really early version of Premiere on it and started editing this film that I'd shot didn't have any work um, but a friend of mine was a promo producer at a company called Bruce Dunlop and Associates and he got me some night shifts shooting uh editing EPKs together for Hollywood movies for a Dutch film channel so I'd go in and work from 9 uh 8 at night till 8 in the morning just sat in a in an avid uh editing these packages together and I I said to him I'd lied a little bit and said, yeah, I can use Avid. And I think he knew that I didn't, but he knew that I'd pick it up pretty quick if I had to deliver. I was delivering like a five-minute documentary every night and so learnt very quickly about um, about how to cut and how to, and how to use, and how to use Avid. Um, and eventually I got a day job there, staff job, 
and I ended up being a sort of senior promo producer there for a couple of years. And um, and all the time I was working on this film that I'd shot, which was finished, and then uh, I came back to Cornwall and showed it to audiences in Cornwall with the help of a, a group called the Cornwall Media Resource that had started up down here. Um, there was an injection of European money through the Objective One scheme for sort of social, social economic redevelopment within Cornwall, European money. And that, so there was a bit of money in Cornwall and I moved back and uh, in March 2002, left a job as a senior promo producer and came back to Cornwall um, and got a bit of money to, to write a screenplay, which uh, 18 years later became Bait. <laughs> Into the Moth Light. Into the Moth Light podcast. Do you think it was important to learn the mechanics of professional film editing and film production um, before you were able to start to deconstruct film and, and work in the way that you do now? Yeah, I think so. I, my my personality is naturally quite contrary so I remember when I first went to university people I was asked by tutors you know you're always asked by tutors what what films do you like and I'd always say I don't really like films partly to get a response out of people but part but I do think partly because I was most films didn't mean anything to me they sort of bored me because there was uh, and it's own uh, and it took me it probably take me two decades to really understand why and I'm only just beginning to understand why now really over the last sort of year or so but it was certainly to do with a lack of experimentation with form I think that's the thing that was leaving me cold the idea that the form should be invisible and if you if you notice the form that in some in some way certainly narrative cinema you were failing as a filmmaker and that was very much the way that it was taught um, but for a few very inspirational tutors that I had who were encouraging the students to to experiment and to be the sort of cutting edge. Yeah, certainly I had to see how, uh, the, how conventional filmmaking worked in order to work out how I wanted to subvert it or experiment with it. Um, and I'm still sort of very interested in that you know I don't you know the av- the avant-garde obviously can't exist without having something to react against so I think it's you know especially working in promos I I did have a moment one day when I just woke up um in London and was going to go to and was on my way to work and I remember it really distinctly and thinking I don't work in the film industry the film industry is an artistic endeavor you know working in the film industry and I'd convinced myself working as a promo producer that I was working in the film industry, but I just suddenly realised I was working in marketing, making promos and film trailers. And I thought, I'm not, you know, I'm. I'd accepted the fact I was working in commercial, in the commercial side of the film industry. But then I, the moment when I realised I was working in marketing was the moment when I thought, right, I've really got to do something else. Not to openly react against that, but certainly move on with what it, it was time to to move on and and do what I wanted to do, because I'd learned all the all the rules and rudiments of 
of how film worked, you know, in terms of things like editing and stuff like that, and and wanted to then really express myself in a different way, which mm-hmm. took took a hell of a long time, and is and was a fight, and and still is a fight to do that. Mm-hmm. But I, I think you you said in an, in an interview that I read recently that every film should be experimental, and I suppose that means that you you need to move away from the algorithms that perhaps makes a Disney movie make a lot of money um, to, to something that is a little more heartfelt perhaps and, and a little more honest. I think just because the art form's so young, I think there should be an, exp- an element of experimentation in everything because we shouldn't have settled on a language or, or a pattern um, of how to, how to make films and also how to tell stories or how to express ourselves you know that film has always borrowed so much from other people from other art forms which is which is inevitable but i think recognizing that inevitability should then fuel a desire to to experiment i remember philip ilson from london short film festival saying a few years ago he was introducing one of the experimental strands um at the festival at the ica and it was an experimental strand, and he and he just said very matter of factly said, I think we're going to get rid of experimental strands because every all short films should be experimental, and I think there's a difference, you know, there's capital there's capital E experimental, the avant garde, which is, you know, has certain uh, not rules, but you know, there's, there's certain um, attempts, there's been attempts to define what the avant-garde is, what experimental film is, and I think, you know, the, the capital E experimental film and the canon is, that's all, that's very important, but but small E experimentation should be within all work that's that's done. I always, I always think about um, you know, horror movies, which for me, most, most horror movies um, I'm ultimately disappointed with Normally, because you know they have a three-act structure and then a third act, a logic has to come in, and and it ruins the sort of the horror that's been there in the first two acts, and it takes a real special film or a real special filmmaker to be able to maintain that horror, despite bringing in a, a logic and a and a conclusion to a narrative. So, most horror films ultimately disappoint me as a viewer, but almost all horror films have got something in them of interest because there's a desire or a need to push the form and it's the one form that really does draw attention to the form constantly you know with things like jump scares and stuff which draw attention to to editing or camera work that draws draws attention to itself in order to to scare people so that uh, you know there's there is a level of experimentation in that form that I don't that in that genre that I don't think you can get away with and it would be nice to see that across all all filmmaking. I'm just re- starting to reread all the um, projections books, the um, the one the John Borman edited ones, and I've, I just yesterday started reading the first one and the first and, and the intro by John Borman. It's interesting what he's saying about the state of certainly Hollywood American movies. In I think it was 1992 he was writing, talking about how um, things were were written to by um, to to formulas. Um, and he was saying that in 1992, <laughs> a time when I think that it was, you know, cinema was quite exciting at that point. And um, yeah, I wonder what he makes of where we are now in terms of those huge formulaic movies that can almost, um, you know, the producers of which can almost 
determine how much money they're going to make before they've even been written. Mm-hmm. But they, they do call them franchises for a reason, don't they? Yeah, and they you know and they serve a purpose. I mean, they you know, I imagine they're they're really serving a purpose at the moment when people need ex- escapism and distraction and stuff. But they, but they also, I mean, whether it's true or not, you know, whether whether trickle down economics do exist within the film industry, they certainly bring in a lot of money that you'd hope somehow manages to find its way into the hands of people who are doing work that isn't going to get as big a, an audience or, or, or films that aren't going to sell as much popcorn. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I'm a little bit bit, bit sceptical about that. <laughs> but you, you did set your own rules for filmmaking, and I was really interested in, in your manifesto, um, the Silent Landscape Dancing Grain 13 Film Manifesto. So you talk about um, the kind of practical and aesthetic benefits of handmade celluloid film work so this was mm-hmm. uh december 2012 so what what was going on around there that you felt the need to commit this manifesto to the page i'd made a film on a dslr and um and the reason i mentioned the dslr is because f- for me it was so liberating to have this little camera that I could shoot with photographic lenses, which I had already, and I could work with a tiny little crew. So I shot a film, and I I shot it, and I had a sound recordist, and then a couple of assistants, and then a couple of actors, and we did it with no script. We'd go we'd go out for breakfast if we were shooting in the day. We'd have breakfast. We'd chat about where we were going to go and what we were going to do, and we'd go and improvise these scenes. And it was a film that was all set on Christmas Eve, and. I spent about four months shooting it on just days when I had access to locations or or access to actors or friends who wanted to be in the film. And it was a brilliant creative process where I felt I'd removed all of the barriers between me and creativity, really. Um, and I cut the film and I was really happy with the final result, but aesthetically I was really unhappy with it. And I felt I didn't feel sort of excited by it and I realised I hadn't actually been excited by the technical process. Working with the actors had been brilliant and not having a script and watching people improvise and provoking people to to perform in certain ways and all that kind of stuff that I was really interested in. That was great, but I felt the camera... I felt totally detached from the camera because it was this digital... You know, a little computer, effectively, which was making aesthetic decisions for me, which were quite which were quite um, big aesthetic decisions that I had no input into. I didn't know how to subvert or control the aesthetic using this digital camera. And um, and around about the same time, I got ill and had to have an operation at very short notice, which was nothing serious, but it meant that I was going to lay on the sofa for about six weeks and not be able to move. And I watched um, the story of film, Mark Cousins' 15 hour um, series that I had on DVD and I'd been meaning to watch it for a while but obviously putting aside 15 hours to sit and watch something it kept getting bumped down my priorities but then suddenly I was incapacitated and so I, I lay on the sofa and I watched it a couple of times all the way through and I just loved how enthusiastic he was about film about film hind- hi- film history about film culture about 
um, world cinema and about form, you know, dissecting form. And I and I lay there thinking, I used to be this excited about film, but I'm not anymore. I'd become disinterested in it through being alienated from the technology, I think. And so as I was laying on the sofa, I thought I'm going to go back to where I started and retrace my steps to where I first fell in love with film, which was this Super 8 camera that I'd got from Exmouth. So I did the equivalent of looking in the yellow free ads newspaper. I went on eBay and and bought a Super 8 camera. And, buy, and it, it, I bought one from Germany, um, a really flashy Super 8 camera, Leica, and it took weeks and weeks to arrive which didn't matter because I was incapacitated and but it turned up just I was getting back on my feet and I went out and and shot a, a few rolls of um, Super 8 and suddenly I was excited by film again I was excited by the film form and I was and I started making these well they were they're not experimental films they're, they're kind of diary films really a series of diary films which ended up being labelled as experimental because they were being shot on small gauge film at a time when nobody was shooting on small gauge film. So they became experimental just because they were shot on a format that nobody was shooting on at the time. But at the same time, I was I was in development with some bigger narrative feature films um, with the, with with various producers that were all going to be shot. They were all being packaged to be shot in the conventional way you know what the the way of shooting film of, of the day so you know the default was they'd be shot digitally they'd be shot on the red or an ARRI and stuff like this which I didn't question you know I think that well that's how feature films are made now but I then had this creative outlet to shoot these short films that I could shoot in whatever way I wanted on on small gauge film and I taught myself how to hand process um, film because all, all the labs were closing at the time I was shooting on old um, expired film I was creating soundtracks um, on tape like I used to and I had all of this complete freedom but the problem with the freedom that I recognized early on was that I I needed rules I needed limitations I re- actually when I was reading that John Borman thing last night he quotes Orson Welles saying that is it um I'll get this quote wrong, but it's you know, awesome. Well, someone said something like, you know, freedom or or a lack of limitations is the enemy of art. And I think I knew that I needed to limit what I could do with film. If I and and originally it was a very practical and financial consideration. I'd just come from shooting this digital feature film on a DSLR, which um, which ended up being. I end up shooting like 30 hours of rushes or something. Now, I cannot even calculate how much that would cost if I was shooting 30 hours of Super 8. You know, I don't don't know anybody who could afford to shoot like that. So I wrote a list of rules to effectively to stop myself from going bankrupt. But, but But as with all practical limitations, they become, they become aesthetic, uh, stimuli. You know, so I, I wrote these rules and I actually wrote them in the bath on Christmas Day <laughs> whilst I was hand processing a um a roll of one twenty roll roll film of my of some friend's wedding 
and eating spaghetti. That, that's all true. That it was a, it was a very strange it was a very strange Christmas, and uh, and I wrote these rules to, to remind myself that I couldn't shoot film in the same way that I was shooting digital. And that the beauty of digital is that you can shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot. The beauty of film is you can't do that. And so it was it was that it, it was that sort of uh, it, it was a, a list of things for me to remember. And when I I wrote them down, and there was twelve rules, and then I said to my mate. Um, Dion whose wedding photos I was actually processing he read them and he said well make you know make it 13 invent a 13th rule and I said I haven't got a 13th rule and he said well make the 13th rule you can break any of the rules including the 13th rule and I thought that was an that's a beautiful little get out and it means that almost everything I do does adhere to the to the rules of the manifesto without even thinking about it really Mm-hmm. And I, I love that 13th rule. Um, what, what would be an example of, of that when you've um, decided to, to break one of the rules for, for uh, to give yourself that little bit of artistic flexibility, perhaps? Well, shooting colour. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of my little Super 8 um, road movies, diary films, are, are colour. So that's the, that's the rule I would, I would break then. Or maybe using a bit of, a bit of music, a bit of sort of non non diegetic sound mm-hmm. which is a funny one anyway because i shoot everything silently so you could argue that every sound is non diegetic but it's more to do with the spirit of the non diegetic than the actual um authenticity of it so yeah i mean i i i never think about the the manifesto anymore i mean really it was a, it was a set of rules that i wrote to then just the act of writing them down would mean that I would be thinking about them. But what happened was I made a film called Cape Corn- Cape Cornwall Calling All the White Horses, which screened at an experimental film festival in Paris not long after I'd written the manifesto. And they published the manifesto in, their, in the festival newspaper, which came out every day. They stuck it on the front and then had a massive debate about the, the manifesto following the screening of the film you know and it was it wasn't a polite sort of british debate it was a it was a french it was a french style cinema debate so it was so i think you know it, it, it the manifesto then had more prominence in my head following that than than actually it would have done um if, if i'd just written it for myself as a way of sort of making sure that i didn't didn't shoot in the same way that I've been shooting digitally. Is it something that you would recommend all filmmakers do at some point, especially if they're having a bit of a crisis in their artistic practice or artistic direction? Yeah, yeah, completely. Because, you know, I, I do a bit of lecturing on the film degree at Falmouth University, and and the thing that the thing that a lot of students worry about, or that the thing that's problematic for them. And I completely understand that this is the uh, is the deadline, and I try and tell them that the deadline is the most valuable thing that they'll get out of the university. The fact that you have to finish work because as soon as they graduate, they don't have any deadlines for their work anymore. They have deadlines for things like paying the rent and buying shopping and and things like that, which which mean they have to compromise what they're doing in their life. They have to sell their time or their skills in in return for money to be able to live. But when you're at, when you're studying, you know, you've got this complete freedom. You can do everything, you can do anything you want, but 
you've got a certain amount of time to do it in and that's a, that's a great limitation you know i'm just starting to write a a new screenplay at the moment which is we're just sort of doing all the contracts at the moment um and what i'm what i'm waiting for is to hear when i've got to deliver it because then i'll work backwards from that point in my head and i will become productive writing a spec script is a completely different thing i'm writing you know i'm writing numerous spec scripts at the moment and i haven't written a word down because there's nobody there's nobody waiting for it you know so in a way you have to kind of create artificial limitations to get creative within and i think the the extreme of that is writing down a manifesto where you limit you limit everything you can do to the point where you just have to go well there's so little i can do now i just need to get on with it and then from my experience that's when you find the freedom and that's part of the reason why i think i'm more productive shooting on film i was there's a there's some another little short super 8 film that i'm thinking about at the moment and nobody's going to fund it nobody's waiting for it nobody's asked me to make it or anything so i'm having to i'm having to design it myself and and fund it myself so i was online last night looking at the price of cartons of super 8 cartridges of super 8 and they've and the price of silver's gone up and the film is really expensive at the moment so it means that i'll probably shoot it on two rolls of film rather than three rolls which means that i will plan it it's got a certain level of planning and a certain um simplicity of form so you know i effectively i'll have a third less running time so i'm going to cut shots and it's all about simplifying it you know bring it make it more and more simple and more and more achievable now if i was going to shoot that digitally i'd have probably started shooting by now i'd have been out i'd have had probably hours of footage and no real concept of what i was going to do and there's been times where i've gone out and shot single role short films you know two minute films like there's one that i did called the road to zena which is just a walk from one end of the road to the other end and i did that walk three times with the camera before i shot it Mm -hmm. because the light wasn't right or my mind my state of mind wasn't right um but i knew i had a 40 quid roll of film in the camera and i wanted and i wanted to use every every frame of it you know every all that film's edited in the camera i didn't it's totally unedited post shooting but that that limitation which is a you know an ugly limitation it's a financial limitation which is you know horrible in a lot of ways but it made me hold off shooting you know i went and shot i went and looked through the viewfinder and did the walk twice before i actually pressed the shutter and for me the film's better for that Mm -hmm. and that yeah and that's just a very basic limitation yeah all this experience and all this learning um and you mentioned a couple of influential tutors that you had is it important for you to teach and share some of this knowledge with the, the, the new generation of filmmakers yeah i wouldn't um it's not as selfless an act as that obviously it's um it's a financial um consideration teaching it's a, it's a good way to to supplement unsteady income from working as a filmmaker but it it keeps me 
sharp in terms of sort of the the theory behind what I do. My dad was a a teacher, secondary school teacher, and he always says the person who's talking the most is learning the most. So as a you know, as a teacher you try and en- enable the the students to have a voice. But on the flip side of that, if I'm trying to impart some knowledge or some experience, just vocalizing it leads to a clarity of thought which helps my work and it and also I'm I'm my belief is that students are, they're the cutting edge of of film you know film's 125 years old we've done we've done a hell of a lot with the form but there's so much still to do and i think a, a third year student doing their final project where they can do anything they want within real severe limitations in terms of money resources and time that's the cutting edge that's the perfect storm of creativity and so I want to be part of you know making them realize that because as soon as they graduate they're going to be compromised by the need to earn money and some of them will continue to be artists and experimenters and pioneers of the form whilst you know underwriting that work with other jobs but a lot of them will go into jobs in the industry in an industry that's already set you know and they'll have to fit in and they'll be a cog in a machine and all of that creativity and individual individuality will have to be compromised in order to get on it's a two-way thing i i i like telling students that it's their responsibility you know the the future of the form is in their hands while they're at university especially when they're doing their third year projects you know they are they should be the inspirational ones and then if they do respond I, I, I like being around people who are trying new things you know I, I used to do a bit of lecturing on a on a photography degree so it was um it was called it's called marine and natural history photography and so it's it's sort of a wildlife you get a lot of people coming on the course who want to be wildlife photographers but it's it's bigger than that so it's where sort of art and science intersect on this photography course um and they got me in in the in the second year to do uh moving image a moving image module mostly because a lot of these photographers were had cameras that could shoot video high definition video so they wanted to make sure that these students were understanding how you make films um so they they got me in to to do that and i would teach quite experimental techniques to them but they were the best students because they were they had no interest in film they weren't film geeks who'd come on the course to be film directors they were photographers who were then just thrown into this module on level two without any any experience of filmmaking really and they were just brilliant because they would come out with the craziest things. They would try the craziest things because they didn't know what they were supposed to be doing. And that was the, some of the most interesting work came from that course because they were naive in the best sense of that word, you know, meaning that entirely positively. They were naive and they were reinventing the form. You know, they weren't going oh, wide shot, mid shot, close up, reverse they were just all over the place and and that was really inspiring for me and I think I, I taught that course maybe 
three years more than I'd planned to teach it because I just used to get so, I, I'd, I'd go in in the morning thinking right what the hell are they what the hell am I going to see this morning and it would just give me you know such inspiration and, and now on the I'm involved on the in the film school school of film and television at Falmouth and they that they've got an experimental module there and it's the same there you know people who have found that they don't necessarily work that well or get excited working in a conventional way in a conventional crew who've got an individual voice and want to learn how they can use the form just as a as an artist rather than as a as a filmmaker mm-hmm. and it's the same sort of thing it's just you just watch it and you just think i've got no idea what i'm watching here but it's something that i've never seen before and that's really exciting when a lot of the time you've got an art form that's so young but already so derivative to see something that's entirely unique um is re- it, it, that's the thing that keeps me engaged with with the teaching mm. no i can definitely see the benefit and i think one of the things i read online was a review it might have been a bit from from one of your students who said you'd shown them early versions of the film yeah so th- does that kind of keep you on your toes uh, as well because obviously you're an established artist but are you ever intimidated by the talent that you see coming through the the classroom there were times maybe when i was teaching maybe 10 years ago where where i could talk about technology and the students would listen to my knowledge and then there was certainly a, a, a day where i went and did a lecture and i had a realization that the students knew so much more than me about the te- the technology side of filmmaking that really made me um think actually you know that that moment where it's suddenly whatever i said i i i just felt i i sounded like their granddad you know talking about cameras that were outdated and they were talking about technology that i had no idea about and I think that changed my outlook on teaching, but it also changed my outlook on my work and how I didn't have to keep up with what was going on um, on the te- technology side of things. And probably part of the reason why I went back to shooting on in, in a way that um, I was more happy shooting and, and was more timeless. So in that sense, I think... For, for a moment I was probably a bit fearful that I'd been left behind but I think now the students are a great resource in terms of finding you know I can ask them what's a codec things like that you know I can and, and I can get information from I'm quite happy sounding like somebody's granddad now um, but at the time when I was probably closer to their age I, I, I suppose there was a bit of a, a, a fear of what was coming um, behind but but most of the time it's um I will use them as a resource as much as I'm a resource for them, I think. And showing work to them is brilliant because, you know, they're harsh. They're harsh critics. They come and do these courses for three years or, or whatever and, and and they're given all this stuff to do and watch and constantly they're, they're asking, why are we doing this? Well, you know, why are we watching this? Why have we got to do this? And, and I think that's really healthy um, as long as it's not just for the sake of that because then they're probably better off doing something else. But constantly questioning what they're doing is great and if you put a film up in front of students you'll get an honest response from them even if it's not verbal you know you switch the lights on at the end and half of them are asleep or on their phones or stuff you know that that will tell you (laughs) whether whether you've got an audience for the work or not and I you know I know of other filmmakers who'll put their work in front of their students um, like I say, you know, they're they're the cutting edge, and they're the cutting edge not only 
in terms of practitioners and artists, but they're the cutting edge in terms of the audience as well. So they're a really important resource. Um, I have had each year, you know, a dedicated set of students who will come and watch rough cuts of, of work and and that kind of thing. You know, it's not always easy to get them to do the extra curricular stuff, especially if they see you as a lecturer rather than as a as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Certainly, you know, since the success of Bay, the 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 um the lectures that I've done since then have been more well attended than the ones before. <laughs> Into the Moth Light podcast. You talk about the craft of your analog film practice um, and I know that you're shooting a, a 1976 16mm Bolex camera. Tell, tell me about your relationship with, with that particular camera. The thing with that camera is I know it inside out and so in a way using that camera is a, is a reaction against uh, or reaction to, to my experience of shooting digitally where I couldn't really get to the bottom of how a digital camera worked. I couldn't un- I couldn't control it the bolex is has been a natural graduation from shooting super 8 shooting on a fully automatic plastic 18 frames a second super 8 camera um falling in love with that and getting very knowledgeable of of what you can do with that camera where its shortcomings are in you know with super 8 is in terms of how big the frame is really and what you can do with it and the lenses on those cameras um and then just gradually progressing to the h16 the bolex which is really the you know the standard camera for certainly you know for for experimental filmmaking it's kind of iconic when i first i when i first used that camera the h16 i borrowed one off a friend of mine and actually i shot a couple of rolls on it i didn't really know how to use it particularly it was a it was a it was one of the early h16 reflex cameras so it had a really dim viewfinder so i found it very difficult to use but i put it on the shelf in my studio and it was you know like a piece of art hanging on the wall for me because it was such an iconic camera because of all the you know the masters who'd who'd used it um and if i did go out and shoot with it people would stop me in the street you know mostly men of a certain age who who recognized the camera would say things like, oh i used to have one of those or my dad had one of those or 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 whatever so in some ways it's it's an iconic camera for me but it's iconic because it's such a beautiful piece of machinery i've got two of them and they've never let me down i've shot a lot of stuff on them you know including bait was entirely shot on on that camera um 130 rolls all of which came out without a problem um, I've actually got two of them. The the second one was given to me by uh, a cameraman called um, Peter Smithson, who who did a lot of uh, David Attenborough's stuff in the 80s and early 90s. So that camera has actually been used to shoot a lot of a lot of the Attenborough, the the pre-digital Attenborough stuff. And he actually gave me a couple of his lenses as well, which are, and it's just so simple, you know, to think that he was. He was shooting in in his. He lives up on the Yorkshire on the edge of the Yorkshire Moors, and his backyard 
was was a film lot basically for for wildlife and um he a lot of the close up stuff for for Attenborough was shot in in the backyard using sets and or literally you know badger set or or a built set in in the yard and he would shoot on this on this clockwork bolex with a with a 16 millimeter ingenue lens which he bought off um a vicar down the road i think it it was you know and i've got that lens now and part of bait was shot on that and so the in some ways i i find i find it funny talking about equipment because it kind of fetishizes the equipment um and i'm wary about being accused of doing that but in other ways i think well you know film's a mechanical art form and you need to acknowledge that and understand that and also actually i talk about the equipment because it's so simple you know i i we shot bait with one camera one lens a light meter, three lights and a reflector. And that was it, you know. So I talk about it, I, I talk about the, that endlessly, um, but only to highlight how simple it can be. And quite often people will say, oh, you know, shooting on the on the Bolex, oh, God, it's really risky, it must be really complicated and difficult. And I just think it's the easiest thing in the world, you know. For me, keeping up with technological developments, that's that's complicated and hard work. Whereas shooting on this timeless camera that so many people have shot stuff with, you know, I I know if that camera's working by the way it sounds. I can I I'll load a roll of film and I'll go to I'll just do a bit of pre-roll, and if it's if it's purring right, I know it's fine. It's the it's the beautiful Swiss engineering. Mm-hmm. And the the caffeinol process, so. I know a lot of filmmakers that that don't like the element of chance involved in home processing, but again, you seem to thrive in in the craft of of home processing. So is that the kind of happenstance, something that you're attracted to, you know, the element of chance? And I guess the the personal responsibility that you need to take for your work rather than sending it to a lab. Yeah, I do like the the element of chance within... Within certain limitations, I <laughs> I need an image to come out, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, there's a huge margin of error in terms of what I'm happy with and and what I get, you know, surprised and sort of delighted by some of the idiosyncrasies of of the processing. Um, yeah, I think people have spoken to me before about how it's the camera that gives my films that distinct look and and it's not you know if I, I I've shot stuff on the Bolex which has been lab processed and it looks absolutely you know immaculate um it is the processing and it's using a rewind tank which is the thing that gives my film the the flicker and the grain and the inconsistencies and yeah I love it I I I just I love the physical work of processing you know I, people have have said to me you know in, on numerous occasions it must be a lot of work and and it is and it takes a lot of time but it slows down the filmmaking process it gives you that distance from the shoot until you can start editing which normally ordinarily you don't have so you end up editing on with the footage you think you've got rather than the footage you've actually got whereas by the time I've processed five kilometers of negative over several months when I look at the footage it's new to me and I can look at it objectively, so that that's a big, that's a big part of it um, for me. But yeah, as you know, the aesthetics are a are, are kind of a byproduct of the process. It's the process I love. You know, I I I don't like 
I, I like processing the stuff myself. I, I, I think giving sending it off to the lab, I, I think why why would I let somebody else have all of that fun of processing and pay them a huge amount of money to do it? But having said that, there's certain things that I do send off to get lab processed. I got um Super Eight thing that I'm doing at the moment which I, which will be lab processed. The next feature film we're doing is gonna be shot on colour neg in a very specific way, so that'll be lab processed. So but then if I'm doing that, I'll find other ways of interfering with the negative um, before it goes to the to the lab. You know, I was talking to, I did a, a an online thing with Robert Eggers the other day and he was talking about the way they shot the lighthouse. And it was shot on 35mm, but it was shot on Kodak XX, which, which is what I shoot on. Um, and they processed it in a, in a conventional way because, you know, um, sort of messing with the the processing in any way at the lab has got a big cost implication so they they shot everything through a, a a cyan filter in the camera which gave the film that sort of ancient look that they were they were after so i think there's an act it's at odds to the digital way of shooting stuff where you shoot where people from what i can understand they tend to shoot everything flat so they can make the creative decisions later on whereas i i like making the creative decisions in the moment when I'm surrounded by other people who are all invested in the film, but also when my adrenaline's flowing and my mind is focused only on the film, the rest of the world doesn't exist, I think that's the time to make those creative decisions rather than doing it all later on. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And there is nothing more exciting than holding a roll of processed film up to the light and, and seeing the images in front of you. Um, yeah. And, and, and knowing that, that, that there's some there's some alchemy happened there that you've been wholly responsible for. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask you finally about um, what you're doing next. So I, I read, we talked about horror films earlier. Mm. I won't attempt to, attempt to Cornish, but um, Stone Island um, with backing yeah. from film four. So yeah. what, what do you have in mind for a, a horror film based on this particular place? Well, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's Ennis Men, which is the Cornish title mm-hmm. and ennis meaning island and men meaning stone a contraction of menia meaning long stone or standing stone mm-hmm. so it's a film it's set in 1973 um on an island off the coast of cornwall an imaginary island um it exists in the film but in, in real life it's 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 not it doesn't exist um and it's set in 1973 it's about a woman who's a volunteer for um, a wildlife trust who is observing the behaviour of a very rare flower that grows on the island in the contaminated soil from an old tin mine that's on the island. And she lives in one of the old miners' cottages. And the only other thing that she's got for company on the island is this ancient standing stone that is in the middle of the island, which gives the island the name and gives her her film the name, gives the film her, the, the name. And um, the stone appears to her to be slowly moving down the hillside towards her cottage and it's it, it's all about why the why the flower is growing there why this particular place and whether it's where the ley lines the energy lines are crossing on this island and it's why the stone is there and that's why the flowers are there but it becomes apparent through the film that not only are, are there ley lines crossing on the island but there appears to be timelines crossing on the island so she becomes aware that maybe she's not alone on the island and the and the stone isn't quite what people think it is 
the film before Bait that I did, the narrative film um, Broncos House, which was done in the same way as Bait, and then Bait, both of those films, quite a few people have commented that they, they felt like they could almost be sort of folk horror films, like the sense of foreboding and the sense of imminent terror or, or violence <laughs> within the film sort of evoked uh, horror. And I and I thought I'd like to try and write a, a horror film. So so I wrote Ennis Men, and then um, when I'd written it, I realised that reading it back, there was no real horror in it. And it made me realise that actually what I do, I think the horror is in in the form. You know, the form is as important as the content. And um, you know, again, going back to talking to Robert Eggers the other day, I think there is overt horror in the lighthouse. And and obviously the the witch that he did before, but I think certainly in the lighthouse there there's a sense of horror within the form. The form becomes untrustworthy in that film because um, the time stops making sense, which is very much what Ennis Men's about. You know, you've got the 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 actual film is untrustworthy, and if you pick it apart and try and put it back together in some kind of chronology, it doesn't it doesn't stand up it doesn't work time doesn't make sense and that i think that's where the that's where the horror is and that's what that's where film excels for me the the the, the temporal dislocation that you can create evoking the dream state the non chronological aspects of our own consciousness and subconsciousness and that that's something that i'm really interested in for, in, in in film because i don't think any other art form can do it like film does it Mm-hmm. No, I, I completely agree. And are, are you so you've got you've got the screenplay? So c- can you see the pictures in your mind yet of what this is going to look like when it comes time to shoot it? Oh God, yeah. I mean, we would we we should have wrapped it on Saturday. We were due to shoot. We were we were not far away from shooting when it all got pulled. So we it's been pushed back a year. So yeah, it's ready to go. I mean, it's all it's all designed. It's all planned. It's all storyboarded. You know, if the world went back to how it was a few months ago tomorrow we could go and shoot it tomorrow so it's all it's all done i mean i'm i'm not even really thinking about it at the moment because everything's in a in a folder um ready to be revisited after christmas getting ready to shoot it next spring i'm actually working on writing something or trying to write something else um starting very soon so so yeah it's all it's all ready to go we're all the all the teams in place it was all cast um i'd even started working on the score so yeah in, in my head it's made in your head, it's made. I've just got to do the sort of technical bit now, actually <laughs> getting the getting the pictures and into the camera. <laughs> there, um, there's there's so much more I could have asked you about, Mark, and, and perhaps we can we can meet up again um, a, a, around the time that this film has been shot and is ready for release. Um, oh, that'd it, be it's, great! Yeah, it's been a pleasure to have a chat with you today. Thank you so much for your time. It's been great. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for <laughs> thanks for thanks for inviting me on. It's been great. Into the Mothman.